0: You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and I have Andrew Kingsley with me. It's just the two of us today. We were honored to have Tim Layton with us last week, and uh, it was fun having a third person in the room. Oh, yeah. Hope we get to do that a lot more, but uh, you're stuck with just us again today, and uh, <laughs> you know we're glad that you joined us. Uh, we're getting into John chapter 5. And to be honest with you listeners we um we just scrapped an attempt to do chapters five and six all in one podcast um mm-hmm. you know we we laid down the the read section you know we read think and apply and uh we tried it it just didn't work um you know i I really messed up many many times
1: yeah it was all drew not me.
0: Yeah, well, that's because you didn't say anything. But you did not that I gave you much of an opportunity to say anything. That's my job. So we're just, uh, look, with the Gospel of John, we're just going to have to take a lot of episodes. Um, Nothing wrong with that. We just want to get done with this before we're 80. Yeah. Before I'm 80 and you're (laughs) much younger than that. So. 50. Yeah, no. 40. You're not that much younger than (laughs) that. Uh, So we're going to do chapter 5, and there's just so much, so much material here to dig into that we're going to enjoy focusing on that one chapter. Before I get into reading some of the verses from chapter 5, I want to point out that there is a transition here. Uh, So far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been pretty well received by the public, but there's a shift here. With chapter five, where we're introduced to some opposition, he's entering Jerusalem a second time. The first time he was down there. Let's not forget that he's turning over tables and driving livestock out of the temple and accusing the money changers and others of turning his father's house into you know a a, a place where there's you know all this enterprise and um, yeah, abuse going on. So he didn't win any friends the last time he was in Jerusalem. They remember that. Mm -hmm. So now he's coming into Jerusalem a second time. There is a feast of the Jews going on in verse 1. It's not named for us. Uh, We've already been through one Passover. Some suggest this is the second Passover, meaning he's entering his second year of public ministry. But we don't know that for sure. Another suggestion has been that this is the Feast of Purim which is established in the book of Esther. And if you want more information about the Feast of Purim, I encourage you to go over and listen to our podcast on Esther if you haven't done that already. Uh, mm-hmm. But we we don't know. I mean, you were saying you know, before we yeah. started, you've seen some evidence that this could be Pentecost, yeah, uh, which is as good a theory as any, because all mm-hmm. it says is that he went out to Jerusalem because there was a Feast of the Jews. Yeah,
1: and it comes from an old tradition from the early Greek church that says that the feast was Pentecost. And that might explain some of the references made uh, to Moses later on at the end of the chapter in verses 45 and 46 because uh, the Pentecost was identified with celebrating uh, Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. So I mean that yeah. that might be kind of a stretch, but I mean but,
0: Passover was connected with Moses as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the point is we Doesn't don't know. And, either way, yeah, yeah. John does give us um, you know some spe- specified feasts later on, chapter six. One of the things that makes me doubt that this is Passover is we're at Passover again in chapter six, and this isn't chronological necessarily, but um, you know it just be interesting for John to start chapter 5 at Passover, number 2, and chapter 6 at Passover, number 3. Mm. But it doesn't matter, really.
1: And then to specify in chapter 6, this is the Passover. But then in chapter 5, just to say there was a feast of the Jews. Yeah. You know, it seems like he would have said, it's the Passover. If right he's going to yeah. specify in chapter six why not specify in chapter five
0: Well not only chapter six but uh, what chapter two uh, they they head down to Jerusalem for the Passover yeah. so you know we don't know the main reason that he brings it up is to explain why they're leaving Galilee for Jerusalem again yeah and uh, it sets up what we encounter as the third sign in John's book of seven signs. Uh, This starts in verse 2 where he explains that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda. Another translation will have Bethsaida. Um, You know, there are different names for it. But he describes it as having five roofed colonnades um, or porches. And in these little shelters, John says there lay a multitude of invalids. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then he says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in these three categories, blind, lame, and paralyzed, we would put him either in the second or the third. He seems to either have been lame or paralyzed because he has this bed or mat that he carries around or that people carry him around on, it seems Mm -hmm. like. Evidently, he cannot walk. 38 years he's been in this condition. Uh, this is the year 2015 at this recording. 38 years ago would have been 1977. That really puts it in perspective. If you think about You know, 1977, uh, Andrew wasn't alive in yeah. 1977. This is a long time that this man has been in this condition. Uh, verse 6 says... When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So he thinks Jesus is referring to a superstition, which we'll talk more about in the second part of the podcast. Uh, yeah,
1: it's a really interesting scene Yeah, here at this pool of Bethesda. It's kind of weird.
0: Yeah, but they're they're talking about two different things. He believes that there's some stirring of the water that's magical. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus is talking about himself healing the man. Yeah. Which the man finds out very quickly. Jesus says to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once... And you see the contrast here to the long time that he's been there in verse 6. Get up, and once the man was healed... And he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, John adds this little bit of commentary at the end of verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. If you're outlining this, the first nine verses there we'll call the repair. This man is repaired through the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. But secondly, we'll get to the reaction of the religious establishment. Remember, we're in Jerusalem, and... These religious leaders in Jerusalem feel threatened by Jesus' popularity and by the way that he's been challenging their traditions and and their abuses of the law of Moses and the righteousness of God. Yeah. So they say to this man, they see him carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, and they say, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And there were... 39 things listed in their traditions that people could not do on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And um, carrying your bed is one of them.
1: The last one. The, the last one, one. yeah. The 39th.
0: So he almost did something lawful, but, but he missed it by one. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. they just hadn't remembered that. If they hadn't tacked on that number 39, he would have been fine.
0: And it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong with it, you know, you could carry a bed as long as somebody was on it. Yes. Like the friends of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Mm-hmm. They weren't break. That happened on the Sabbath day as well, I, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. They weren't breaking the Sabbath, and nobody stopped them because there was a man on there, and these poor people had to get to the synagogue. They had to get home, and they had to be transported some way. But if you were just carrying a bed around, that was considered work. A violation of one of the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. and you know, according to Exodus chapter twenty, you were to be put to death for violating the Sabbath in that way. Yeah. So they 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 were very stern about him. And, and they wanted to that, know who said who said you could do this.
1: Yeah, that's in the Mishnah in the section on the Sabbath um, in seven two, and then again in ten five, and that explains like the carrying the empty beds and. Which but is not 39 inspired. No.
0: It's rabbinical teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, it's traditions. And a lot of times when um, Jesus says you make void the word of God by your traditions that you've passed down, he's referring to the Mishnah, yeah. this rabbinical teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very well schooled in it. We are not. So we have to look these things up to kind of understand what in the world's going on. Mm-hmm. So in verse 14, this man doesn't know who healed him. But in verse 14, Jesus finds him in the temple. And it's very interesting that he waits till the guy is in the temple to find him. Jesus is drawing the opposition out. He didn't find him in a private place. He found him in the temple. And he said, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And, uh, this by the way is very similar to what we'll see in chapter 9 with the blind man mm-hmm. you know he he doesn't know who jesus was at first either and then jesus finds him again and we've seen this yeah, recurring I mean, stuff in john a lot because mm-hmm. we noted parallels between nicodemus and the samaritan woman and now you know we'll see a parallel between this man and the healing that's recorded in john chapter 9 but that's for john 9 we'll wait till we get there to say any more about that Mm-hmm. Verse 16, though, tells us that this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So that's their re- reaction. They persecuted Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath.
1: Yeah, and this is the first time that he's actually uh, actively shown some kind of hostility by the Jews. It's kind of, It was kind of implied in chapter 4, but this is the first time that the Jews are actively, are actively hostile towards Jesus, and like you mentioned, you know that shift. Yeah, that Jesus has been popular, and yeah. then chapter five is going to mark a shift where he's not anymore. Uh, this is really the first benchmark of that. That I guess Jesus is not going to be quite as popular and received by the masses as he was leading up to now,
0: and it, and it'll stay that way to the end of chapter twelve, which ends his public ministry. Yeah. The the popular, Of course, he remains popular with the crowds. At the end of chapter 6, he gets a little less popular. But um, you'll see the opposition all the way throughout the rest of his public ministry. Now, let's look at Jesus' response to their reaction. That's the third part of chapter 5. And um, he responds in two ways. The first way that he responds is he basically says this. I can heal on the Sabbath because I am equal with God. Mm-hmm. And we, when we talked about the prologue of this, we discussed some religious groups who do not believe that Jesus claimed to be God. And, you know, John starts the gospel out saying, The Word was God. And, you know, some have tried to translate that differently, and we've already covered all that ground. We're going to see in chapter 5 and many other places, John declaring Jesus to be the Son of God and equal to God. And this is one of those great places where you see that. He gives three points in developing that idea, starting first of all with the idea that he is equal with God in nature. Look at what he says in verse 17. My Father is working until now, now being the Sabbath, And I am working. Now, we know he's referring back to the creation of the universe in six days. And you know that on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, God rested. But that simply means he rested from his creative work. He didn't just stop working totally, absolutely. He rested from his creative work. On the seventh day, he completed that work and he stopped creating. But he started the maintenance phase of creative work uh, of the uh, sustaining the universe uh, this is mentioned and attributed to Christ by the way in Colossians 1 and in Hebrews 1 which says that he sustained all things by the word of his power so Jesus is saying it's still raining on the Sabbath, It's still the sun still comes up on the Sabbath uh, you know living things still breathe and Plants grow and God still active. Mm -hmm. And I'm like God. I'm doing the same thing. And so they stopped persecuting and started working to kill him at that point. And John says it's not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Mm -hmm. equal uh, with regard to nature. Okay, secondly... He says, "I can do this because I'm equal with God in power." Uh, now, in verse 19, he points out that while he's equal with God, he's not a competitor with God. He says, "The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing." And we'll get more. We'll say more about that concept because that's a very interesting idea in itself. But note in verse 21 the equality in power where he says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And there's some debate over whether he's talking about physical resurrection like with Lazarus or a spiritual resurrection like we're seeing here with the man who was paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know. It doesn't matter. He's saying, I've got power like God has power, that God and I are equal in power. Mm -hmm. The third claim is equality with God in authority. He's been talking about resurrection, and he elaborates on that, talking about the authority has been given in judgment. Verse 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's a reference to authority. So he's saying, I heal on the Sabbath because I'm not like everybody else. I heal on the Sabbath because I'm equal with God. God works. I work. Mm -hmm. Now that's the first part of the response. The second part of the response is he gives four witnesses to this claim of equality. You know, he realizes that anybody could walk around saying, I'm equal with God. You've got to have some witnesses to establish that fact. In verse 31 he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. He's referring back to this tradition that you know, a case cannot be made except with at least two or three witnesses. So he's saying here, you know, I'm going to give you witnesses, mm-hmm. starting with number one, John the Baptist. And he talks about John in verse 32 and following. And I think it's very interesting that he's speaking about him in the past tense. You notice verse 33, you sent to John, and he is born witness. And he says, uh, verse 35, he was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John doesn't dwell on this, but in Matthew 14 we learn that John the Baptist was beheaded because he was preaching against Herod and his unlawful marriage to his brother Philip's wife. Mm-hmm. And so uh we assume that uh John is dead by now. And Jesus is trying to deal with this and He's speaking of him in the past tense. But he points out that John was a witness. Number two, he gives his own works as a witness, saying in verse 36, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, and he's talking about miracles, his signs, Mm -hmm. these bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You know, Nicodemus said that. No man can do the works that you do unless God has sent him. Number three, he lists the Father. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Verse 37, when he was baptized, this voice booms from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Number four, he gives the Scriptures. And he says in Mm -hmm. verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So you have four witnesses that back up Jesus' claim of equality with God, equality with God in nature, in authority, in power. And those witnesses are John the Baptist, the works of Christ, the Father, and the Scriptures. And we have a lot more to talk about, but that uh, gives you a basic foundation of what chapter 5 is all about. We're back, and uh, we got a lot of uh, interesting things to discuss, starting with the Pool of Bethesda, or Bethsaida. Uh, This was a very interesting place, Um, Mm -hmm. part of the temple complex, I suppose. Bethesda meaning House of Mercy. Mm -hmm. So there was an obvious superstition involved, and... You know, if you were reading from the King James, you might have noticed that I skipped over some verses. And I think the King James is the only one that includes this. But there is a variant that is found in some manuscripts. And I'll go ahead and read the text with that in there now. Um, If if you're reading that with the variant, verse 3 would read this way. In these colonnades... "...lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had." Mm -hmm. Now... I don't have a problem with including that in the text because the man obviously makes reference to it. You know, when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, he, thinking Jesus is referring to the superstition, says, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. So that's one reference to the superstition, Mm -hmm. the stirring of the water. And then, you know, he says, and while I am going another steps down before me referring to another part of it which is only the first person in is the one who gets healed Yeah. so that that obviously was a belief that was going on it's just not real clear that John wrote that much about it in his account and we know that because it's not in the earliest and best manuscripts that we have in some of the manuscripts that we have there are asterisks next to it, Mm -hmm. you know, which indicates that it wasn't original with John. Uh, There's a lot of phrases and expressions in it that are not words that John customarily uses, and there's just a a diversity of forms in which it's been transmitted down to us. So, you know, it, it doesn't belong in the original, although... You know, John definitely had this in mind. This was something Mm -hmm. that was understood by the original readers. And we really kind of need that commentary to understand what the man's talking about. I mean, if you don't have any understanding of this superstition, you don't know what in the world verse 6 or verse 7 means when he's telling Jesus, nobody can put me in here when the water's stirred up. What, you know, is this a whirlpool or, Mm -hmm. you know, is this... A hot tub? What is he talking about? So, he's referring to this idea that at certain seasons, and evidently they knew when those seasons were, maybe feast times, mm-hmm. they believed that an angel stirred the water, invisible angel, we guess, whenever they saw that water stirring, the first one in got healed of whatever illness he had. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah it's it's a really really strange belief and i think it's important mm-hmm. to point out that jesus doesn't you know back it up he never says yeah that's tough but uh since you're not fast enough to get in there for this angel of the lord uh yeah. i'm going to give you the next best thing that's not you know there's no evidence that jesus or the biblical writers believed the superstition mm-hmm. there is evidence that there were a number of invalids who believed the superstition. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's some other things in this culture, this time of world history, uh, where people thought that springs would heal you. Uh, there's one, in, There was one at Delphi, uh, I think. There was some kind of spring that people would hop into, and they would say that it would cure them of all their uh, ales or whatever was bothering them. Apparently, that's the same kind of superstition going on here in Jerusalem. Uh, there's not really any... Now, there is a little bit of... For some of those pools, there's a little a little bit of science behind. Yeah, if so-and-so might have had this kind of a disease, then certain chemicals in the waters could have helped with it. Uh, but there's really nothing uh, on that here for the Pool of Bethesda. It was probably just complete... Uh, superstition really based on maybe somebody actually uh, having something cured of a long time ago that would have lasted as a myth or a legend until psychosomatic effects yeah
0: we see it in faith healings all the time and uh, you know when you're desperate you'll believe anything Yep. in the absence of any kind of real hope you'll believe anything and here You know, this man went from a wishful thinking to real hope in -hmm. the person of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, it's just a really weird picture. All these paralyzed people laying around, waiting in line, I guess, to get into this pool whenever they see the water start bubbling.
0: They built these colonnades or porches for these people. Mm -hmm. You know, evidently the the superstition was there first. The pool was there first, and then superstition developed, and then they constructed these porches so these people could get out of the rain. Mm-hmm. That just lying, you know, they're just lying around all the time, waiting for a stirring of the waters. And when they see it, you know, they get there. Yeah, it, have we found this pool? I'm see. Yeah, you're looking at some pictures. Yeah, they found so, this
1: pool in uh, 1956. Uh, they were digging around this site, and they found the rectangular pool uh, with five porticos. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so they, this is accepted as the biblical site. It's got
0: to be if it's a pool with five porticos around it, and
1: it's not far from the sheep's gate, which is mentioned there yeah. in verse two. And that's actually why uh, that has some influence on that being translated as the sheep gate, because in Greek. Uh, the word gate is not there. It just kind of, in Greek, it just, by the sheep. It looks like it says, by the sheep pool, or by the pool of sheep. Hmm. And so, but they put in now, the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, uh, partly because of this discovery, and it's next to the sheep's gate. So it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit of interesting archaeology there. Hmm. But the pool is definitely there today. You can, Type it in on Google, pull Bethesda, and it'll pull up a bunch of pictures and that sort of thing.
0: That's neat. All right. So uh, we wanted to talk also about this um, statement that Jesus says to the man when he finds him in the temple. I'm referring to verse 14 See, you are well, send no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is this? Is this karma? Is this Jesus saying, you know, for every sin there's a corresponding physical consequence this side of Judgment Day? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that what he is he telling the man you've been you've been paralyzed thirty eight years because you were a bad guy, mm-hmm. or is it something else?
1: Yeah, I think at first glance it might look like he's drawing some kind of connection between the man's righteousness and then. The paralysis that he's had for his whole life, for the problem that he's had for his whole life. Uh, but you know, in John nine three, when we when we mentioned this earlier in the first section, uh, when Jesus heals the guy of his blindness, he's telling everybody that this man's blindness was not a result of his sin or the sin of his parents. Uh, he's actually blind so that the glory of God might be revealed. Uh, that's what he says in John right. nine three. So. You know, health and wealth, Jesus does not teach that health and wealth is parallel to your spirituality. If that were true, then he would not have made statements uh, such as, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. Because Mm -hmm. if all the rich people were the righteous people, then it would be very easy for them to get into heaven. Mm -hmm. Uh, So health and wealth are not necessarily uh, determined... By your level of righteousness, certainly Job would have been an example of that with the trials that he went through. Um, uh, still, yeah, a righteous man. He and man. he
0: and all his friends believed that at first. Yeah. But at the end of the book, they're repenting of of this philosophy. Yeah. That, you know, suffering is proof of sin. Mm-hmm. So what Jesus may have been saying is, if you think. Thirty-eight years of paralysis is bad. Keep sinning, and you'll see what's really bad. Yeah. After you die and are judged. hmm Because uh, you know that is a better, a better interpretation in the context of the whole Bible, and mm-hmm. Christian teaching.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's what is at the heart of what he says here. Uh, It's got to be otherwise in the other places where he's teaching on um, righteousness and health than these things. I mean, in the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Uh, blessed are the meek. You know, those are definitely, they do not teach a prosperity gospel. Right. You know, the the more righteous you are, the more God is going to give you money and opportunities. Yeah, and
0: why why did Jesus come in the form he came in mm-hmm. as a person who had nowhere to lay his head if the gospel he preached was meant to make people fabulously wealthy? Yeah. But man, or I healthy. tell you what, Either it's a one. popular it's a popular doctrine today. Yeah, it is. And and there's no absolutely no proof of that. Mhm. Uh, Let's move to verse 19. Verse 19 is one of my favorite uh, verses in the book of John because it's a really fascinating concept. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This, remember, is in the middle of a conversation about his equality with God. Mm-hmm. Equal in nature, equal in power, equal in authority. But even though he says, I'm equal in nature, power, and authority, I am submissive to my Father, because mm-hmm. I am the Son. And it kind of explains some of what we were trying to work through with John 3.16, and the you know, definition of monogonase. Yeah. whether it should be translated only begotten Son or only Son and um, you know even John 1 where he is the Word is with God and the Word is God you know it's hard to work all these things out. How can you know a lot of people misunderstand John 1 and John 3:16 because they think in order for Jesus to be the Son he has to be created by the father because that's what we know about fathers and sons and maybe that's maybe we should change our idea of the father you know in our society today and this kind of gets into a practical thing but we make fatherhood about the ability to conceive a child you know that makes you a father if you're able to um, you know I'm trying to put this delicately but if you're able to impregnate a woman you're a father Mm -hmm. But that's not what a father is. That's not all there is to fatherhood. Yeah.
1: uh, Yeah, you wouldn't call a guy that just uh, leaves a woman after she has a kid a father. Right. I don't think you'd call him a father.
0: Well, you know, and I'm getting a little personal here, but my children are adopted. Mm -hmm. And I have no biological contribution to their existence. Yet I am their father. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, Jesus as son... That doesn't have to mean that he was a created being. Yeah. What we're seeing here in verse 19 defines his role as son. And it's simply that he voluntarily chooses to be submissive to his father. Mm-hmm. And he, he mimics his father. Whatever I see the father doing, that's what I do. And uh, that's why he's going to be able to tell Philip later, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And that's why we've already noted John 1, 18, where um, he said no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Mm-hmm. Jesus made the Father known. But he did that by being submissive. So I'll, w- there's a practical lesson here as well, which I'll return to later. But do uh, you want to say anything else about that? Uh, we'll return to thinking. it over and over again. John... John has his theme. He picks this theme up several yeah, times.
1: Uh, the next thing I want to bring up if I'm not moving too far ahead no, is, no, go. is down in verse 35 where we're talking about John. Uh, I think it's worth noting, I don't know if you want to take this all the way to the bank or not, but it's worth noting that there's some similarity here, more similarity between Elijah and John. And we know that uh, Jesus tells his disciples that Elijah, or that John was Elijah who is to come. Uh, He fulfills the role of being the forerunner of Christ, kind of is that next coming of Elijah, not exactly like the Jews were looking for. They were looking for the physical Elijah to come back, because Elijah never died uh, in the proper sense of the word death. You know, he was taken up by God. They are waiting on him to come back, and... You know, as we said, this is probably after Elijah's, or Elijah, after John has already been killed, thus he's referring to him in the past tense, but in verse 35, he says that uh, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, in Psalm one thirty-two seventeen, 17, uh, the writer there says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, and uh, there are a few commentators that think this could be a prophecy about the coming of the forerunner for Christ and drawing a parallel to Elijah. Revelation 11 uses some imagery uh, with, some, with two lampstands, and it looks like that's drawing back to Elijah as well. Uh, and there was an old tradition among the Jews where Elijah was called a flame like a torch, so it's interesting to note there's a some 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 I guess connection here between John and Elijah, but it's just interesting to see, you know, a little more uh, into this relationship that I guess John has as the the Elijah who was to come. Yeah. In the context, it's exactly what he's talking about. Is John is born witness of me. And that's yeah. what you know. John one, when it mentions John there to start with, is all about. You know, he came to bear witness about the light. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light.
0: Yeah. What? L- let me back up to get one more thing okay. that I missed a moment ago. Uh, you know, there's there's a really popular idea. We call it premillennialism. I don't know if that's a word they use. Uh, the, you know, um, dispensationalism is another term, having to do with events at the end of time. Very popular idea, I'd say that probably most evangelicals buy into it these days, and a lot of it's not because of biblical teaching, but because of popular literature books like Left Behind, movies like Left Mm -hmm. Behind, the first Left Behind with Kirk Cameron, the second Left Behind with Nick Cage. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows, how many times are they going to make this movie? Yeah. Um, And one of the important parts of Left Behind and Premillennial Doctrine, I don't want to outline the whole thing, but one of the the parts of it says that at the end of time, there will be a rapture, at which time the righteous will be resurrected. The righteous dead will be resurrected. Mm -hmm. And those who are still alive will be secretly taken up, caught up. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation and a thousand year reign. And if I understand it correctly, it's after that 1,007 years, then finally the wicked will be resurrected. The wicked dead will be resurrected. And then comes Judgment Day. So my mm-hmm. point is, there has to literally be, and I say literally because there is a first and second resurrection mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, but I believe those are symbolic in nature mm-hmm. and not literal in There has to literally be, a and and they're not distinguished necessarily as the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. But in order for premillennialism to work, there has to be a literal first resurrection of the righteous, a thousand seven-year period of time, and then a second resurrection of the wicked. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a hard time reconciling that with John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Look at the you know, the big word for this is eschatology. Look at the eschatology of those two verses. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, so a period of time, a fixed time, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And that's all that he had to say to settle this question. Everybody in the tomb. But he continues. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So all are going to come out at the same hour. That includes those who have done good and those who have done evil. Mm -hmm. It seems to me a simultaneous resurrection is being talked about here to occur at the end of time. You can put that also with a speech that Paul made before Felix in Acts chapter 24 where he speaks, he, he just says plainly, there will be a resurrection, so a single resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. Same time, just and unjust. Same time, good and evil. I don't really understand why people have such a hard time seeing what's wrong with premillennialism. Yeah. You know, they they want to go to Revelation chapter 20 And they want to get involved in all the symbols and come up with these fantasies and these stories and and think they know everything about the end of time. And they can't even get this plain teaching right. The way you interpret the Bible is you start with the literal teachings and you work those out. And then you interpret the symbols according to what the literal teachings say. Mm -hmm. But what premillennialism does is goes to the most obscure, symbolic, figurative passages of Scripture and read Mm -hmm. into it, which is eisegesis, not exegesis, they read into it a preconceived notion, and then they just ignore the plain teaching in -hmm. order to get what they want. And there's something really wrong with that approach to biblical interpretation.
1: Okay, so as we start to apply some of these things from John 5, I want to look at verse 6 where Jesus sees the man lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time. He says to him, do you want to be healed? And I think there's something to say just about that short question that Jesus asked the man that definitely applies to us today. Uh, Certainly not just with regards to whatever kind of physical problems we have you know whatever sicknesses or whatever Uh, but a lot more I guess a little more deeply into some of the spiritual problems that we have do we really want to be healed and I think if the answer to that question is yes then every single time uh, Jesus is willing to heal us of whatever it might be Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think obviously that was going to require some work on our part as well but I think there's a lot of you know, a, a lot of summing up of what Jesus came to do just in that question, do you want to be healed? Yeah. And he knows and, the and, guy does, and he heals him verse 8. You know, get up, take your bed and walk.
0: And there are really people who don't want that. hmm Right? I mean, there there are people who don't want it spiritually. There are people who maybe don't want it physically. Yeah. You know, they... For whatever reason, I'm thinking about you know people who have this sadistic pleasure in in pain or misery. Uh, you know they're afraid of being a contributing member of society. They're afraid of having responsibility. They enjoy playing the victim. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm mixing. I'm jumping too much between physical problems and spiritual problems. But I think. I think spiritually this this happens in all those ways. That some people just don't think they're redeemable. Uh, They don't have enough faith in Christ to bring them out of the depths Mm -hmm. they've sunken into. And, you know, so Jesus leaves it up to us. He doesn't force anybody to be saved. Yeah. So he asks, do you want to be healed? You know, it's Mm -hmm. the picture in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Mm -hmm. And you can open the door and let me in, or you can keep the door closed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the case with all the miracles that you see him performing in all four of the Gospels. You know, all the people that he heals or all the people uh, uh, that he heals their kids for, you know, on behalf of them coming in and asking him. Uh, and then all the way to us today, there's definitely that aspect of, you know, we have to actually have the desire to be healed, uh, and you have to have the faith that He is able to heal as well. Uh, you know, I think those are two sides of the same coin there. Uh, that you find, and in every single case, Jesus is willing to heal. You know, I we're never going to find a day where, you know, we we have the desire and the faith, um, you know, to have to be saved by Christ. But then Jesus is going to say, "Well, nah, you know, I'm not willing to." All through uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, I don't know of any instances in John. You might be able to help me out there, uh, but where people will say to Jesus, "If you are willing, then heal me," pretty much, or if, or they'll say, "If you are willing or willing, you, you can heal me."
0: One time, um, somebody said to Jesus, if you can, will you heal my son? And Jesus Mm -hmm. said, if I can, (laughs) if I can, all things Mm -hmm. are possible to those who believe. And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yeah, that's in Mark. It's a beautiful... I I think it Mm -hmm. says a lot more about human nature than than Jesus on that, but it's just, you know... That is a case where somebody, you know, seemed to doubt whether Jesus could do it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. If you can. Yeah.
1: If you can, do it. Yeah. But I don't don't know if there's, you know, much more for us to discuss here other than, you know, we have to have, initially, we have to have that willingness, the desire. You know, we have to actually want to be righteous. We have to actually want to be like mm -hmm. Christ. And if we have that desire, then you yeah. know, it's gonna make it a lot easier for those other things to fall in place kind of you know, even with a kind of a rough illustration, but if you don't have a desire to get in shape, you're not gonna get in shape. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh you're not gonna be willing to do the difficult things to get you there. And it's certainly the same way with our spiritual health as well, whatever things well, we're yeah, trying to I, overcome.
0: That's the problem with universalism. And it was a premise behind C.S. Lewis's book *The Great Divorce*, where he describes hell as a place that people choose to stay in. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they they don't really want to be with God, and mm-hmm. that is why. And I don't know if it's the same um, same book or something else that I've heard from Lewis, where he said hell is basically, you know. Where, you know, heaven is, I'm, I should have looked this up. <laughs> but it was like, he, heaven is where, you know, we say to God, thy will be done. And hell is where God says to us, thy will be done. Yeah. You know, it's 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 our own choosing. Mm-hmm. So, we beat that to death. Let's, yeah, let's go to a on different to one. one.
1: Uh, I guess we can move on to... Another statement that's made here in John by Jesus in chapter 5 in verse 14. And we discussed this a little bit in the last section. Uh, But he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And we talked about how this is, you know, the idea behind this is sin no more so that nothing worse. What's worse than 38 years of being paralyzed? Well, eternal punishment is going to be worse than that. And that's obviously at the heart of it. But, you know, there is still something to say, while health and wealth aren't directly related to sin, a lot of sin does directly cause problems on earth. Mm -hmm. You know, sins do have consequences, uh, just like any action that you do has a consequence. Not in the sense of karma, to where if you do something bad, morally wrong, then, you know, it's going to come around to you and you're going to get it right back one day. But more so in the sense of, you know, if you, um, I'm trying to think, if you get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car, there are going to be some negative consequences that come as a part of that. Not because of karma, but because of the science. As a general rule. Yeah. Uh,
0: and and there are exceptions. It's like Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that your days may be long on the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a guarantee that every obedient child lives a long life. But generally speaking, if you're submissive to authority and you're obedient to your parents and you live by the rules of the land, you're going to live a longer life than the rebel who's always challenging authority and fighting the police and you know, yeah. uh, living a reckless lifestyle.
1: Yeah, and I think there's, you know, we need to be careful to make sure, to make the distinction of this is not karma, which we have said before, but definitely this is why parents try and keep their kids from getting into bad stuff because they know it's bad for them, Mm -hmm. you know, because negative things happen when you do these types of things. You want to get into these things, well, here are the things that you're going to get. And I worry uh, for our teenagers a lot uh, because of how, you know, our our culture depicts a lot of negative things. Uh, the the big one is you know the whole party scene, mm-hmm. uh, movies, music, all these things that the kids are getting pumped into their head every day. Uh, they really glorify that kind of stuff, make it look like it's so much fun, and you know it's just what everybody does, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's no negative consequences that come with it, but That's not how it works in the real world. In the real world, you know, high school kids will do a party. You know, uh, high school kids will go and party and this and that and the other, but then somebody is injured very badly. Somebody gets killed in a car wreck. You know, these are things that you don't get in the movies, that, that you don't get from music. All these tragic things that happen to people as a result of things that they had no business doing in the first place. Now, a lot of kids, you know, they do enjoy the, you know, no consequence from, they, they somehow are fortunate enough to avoid some mm-hmm. of the things that should be coming along with these things. Uh, but most kids, I feel like they're in the minority, the ones that get mm-hmm. out of it uh, without a scratch.
0: Right. Uh, I mean, they certainly, a lot of them get out, but... Not without the scratches and the yeah. deep scars that occur.
1: Yeah, when they get older, you know, working in college ministry uh, for a few years just as an intern, you know, we had, uh, I talked to a lot of people that were in high school. They were involved in all all the wrong kind of stuff, you know, the whatever wrong stuff you can get involved in in high school. And, um... When they got to college, they were trying really hard to turn all that around, um, and it was really difficult for them because of all the scars that were there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that for the rest of their lives, I'm sure to this day now, they've got problems trusting people because of you know, relationships they allowed themselves to get in because of the kind of people they were surrounding themselves with. And, uh, you know, they put themselves in an environment of sin, and as a result, for the rest of their lives, they have all this baggage that they're carrying mm-hmm. around with them, and that's not karma. That's just you know? a consequence of doing the wrong thing.
0: Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads into another thing, another practical lesson here from verse 19. I, I've noticed what we're doing today is we've we've got these favorite verses, and we've made mm-hmm. them into thought thought discussions and now we're yeah. making them into practical discussions. But, mm-hmm. you know, verse 19, you have this beautiful example of submission mm-hmm. where Jesus says, I don't I don't do anything of my own accord, only what I see the Father doing, whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. Now, if that was good enough for Jesus, can we not all learn submission? Yeah. And, you know, that is a real problem in today's society. We have this anti-authoritarian spirit that's looming over us. Uh, people don't like authority. They don't want to follow their parents and, you know, um, or the elders. Elders in a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it bring up real controversies right now. Women don't like the roles that are assigned for the assembly in the New Testament. Yeah. You know, uh, wives don't like the idea of submission that's being promoted in Ephesians five. I, some some wives. Yeah. So there's this idea that you know these biblical ideas that are obviously there about women uh, being submissive to men in the assembly, not serving as elders, not serving as preachers. Uh, wives being submissive to their husbands. These are antiquated ideas. That are not a part of God's eternal plan or timeless plan, but just a part of Paul's cultural mindset that Mm -hmm. that we can jettison and, um, you know, not take with all the other stuff of Paul that we think is great and accept. And, uh, you know, behind all of those reinterpretations is this hatred for submission. Yeah, and, and this, you know, consideration that submission is a bad thing.
1: Yeah, the submission makes you lower than the person that you're submitting to.
0: Yeah, that's less of a person. Yeah,
1: and I think that's why ladies, some ladies have such a big problem with because they're saying, well, I'm just as important as the man, so why does he, you know, why is the man allowed to serve in this role and the woman does not? I have to, you know,
0: submit I can't be submit I can't submit and be equal. Yeah. And then look but look at the text. Verse 18 says the Jews were trying to kill Jesus because he made himself equal with God. And in the very next verse, Jesus says I don't do anything but what I see the Father doing. So they're mad cuz he's equal with God and he says I'm submissive to God. Yeah. So that challenges the idea that you can't be submissive and equal. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, before we leave this point, let's not forget that everybody is asked to submit in yeah, some way.
1: what I was about to bring up, yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. No, but, no.
0: You know, I, I just think when women think that they're the only ones that are being asked to submit, and when men make it look like that, you know, it's not just the women, but when men act as if they don't have submissive relationships...
1: Yeah, a lot of men do abuse that sure of scripture yeah. and, and miss most... what I actually learned from you um, in a sermon in that sermon series you did on Ephesians, that entire section at the end is about everybody yeah. submitting to everybody really.
0: Right, because in Ephesians five twenty one he says that part of what being filled with the Spirit is is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes. And then he just gives some examples.
1: Husbands, wives, children, slaves.
0: Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. he only gives three examples, but he could have given more. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think you bring up the eldership, for example, a moment ago. You said that. I think that's a great example. You and I are submissive to our elders, And somebody says, Well who the elders answer to? Well they have to be submissive to one another, or an eldership where you have a plurality of elders who are equal have equal authority, it doesn't work. You know, if you have a chief elder, that's not the biblical plan. Mm -hmm. If there are two men, those two men are submissive to one another. If there are twelve or sixteen, they have to consider one another. Yeah. And all of us are under Christ. Who has submitted himself to the Father?
1: Mm -hmm. So um, it's a pattern. As a follower of Christ is a pattern, and I'm thinking of Paul. And do you have another uh, application you want to make? Because I don't want to take up the rest of our time. I have
0: one more, and it's a good one.
1: All right, well I'll fly through this then. Uh, Paul, you know, says, "Be imitators of me as I am of Christ." Uh, He is a guy that always practiced submission. Uh, while he was doing his work, uh, you can see that in his whole discussion with food sacrifice to idols. Yeah, he said, "I know I can do it if I want to, because there's I, an idols nothing." And you did you mention that Sunday? Mm-hmm. I think, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, now I'm off track, but he says, "You know, I know I can if I want to, but I'm not going yeah. to if it is going to cause someone else to stumble." Yeah, uh, attitude. Even Paul, who had a revelation directly from Jesus Himself, you know, for that guy to be able to submit to other people—well,
0: what about the Book of Philemon? Uh, I could command you, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to appeal Appeal. on the basis of love. Yeah, Uh, there's so many good things on submission. It's not studied enough in the right context. We should have done
1: that for the whole section on apply this time. Yeah, well.
0: This but this next okay. one is a good one too. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Eternal life. What do we all think about when we think about eternal life? We think about something we don't have now that we'll have in the future. It mm-hmm. starts at death, or it starts at judgment day, or it starts when I get to heaven. And John five challenges that idea. Look at verse twenty four. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Has eternal life; he does not come into judgment, but has passed, like already has passed from death to life. So, verse twenty-four, Jesus is talking about eternal life in the present tense. You already have it, and but then there is, of course, a sense in which it has not come into its full culmination. Now that's when you get into verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine that talk about the resurrection. When the resurrection, when that hour comes, and everybody comes out of the tombs in their, you know, whether they're wicked for the resurrection of condemnation or righteous for the resurrection of life, that that's the point when eternal life is in its full completed stage. But we ought to be looking at it in terms of already enjoying eternal life now. Some have styled this the already slash not yet um, mm-hmm. way of looking at eternal life. We're already doing it, but not fully. When Jesus comes back, we will fully realize eternal life. Mm-hmm. It gets back to some of the things Jesus was reassuring his disciples about in Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, Paul Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, "You know, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children in the lands. For my sake, for the gospel, will not receive a hundredfold now in this time... Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He's talking about you, you, you're you already enjoying the blessings of Christianity now. And then there is that full culmination of eternal life that is yet to come. Well, we're way over time. This is not going to upload if we go much further. So uh, I want to say thank you for joining us. Um, you know, check us out on Twitter. Check us out at the66.net, send us some feedback, and leave us a review on iTunes. That really gets us up. I think we're now fourth in line when you search for the 66 Podcast. So we're climbing, we're climbing. And that is happening because people are leaving ratings, people are leaving reviews. Give us a review and get us up there to where when people type in the 66 podcast. Or maybe even Bible or something like that. We, we, we're up there and one of the first ones that you can see. That's how you can really help us spread the word about this podcast. Thanks
1: to those who have written us a review thus far and to those guys on the mission trip that downloaded our episodes.
0: Yeah, it, it helps. All right, join us next time. We'll talk about John chapter 6.